Hello then, here we are passing the baton number 41, uh, Growing Up in God, and the date the 25th of September 2010. So before we start, let's commit our hearts again to, to the Lord, shall we? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for all you've done in Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for everything that you are doing in us and through us. Thank you that without you we can do absolutely nothing. Thank you that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to reveal it and find it out. Thank you, Father, that you have given us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. And I pray, Father, that if there is anyone listening here to this CD that has not been baptised in your Holy Spirit and so would therefore be totally unable to walk this walk, please would your Holy Spirit come and fill them to overflowing right now in the name of Jesus. Receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the empowering presence of God. So, Father, we bless you. I pray that you will be blessed by my words and that, Holy Spirit, you will take my tongue and use it as the pen of a ready writer. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the subtitle for this month's teaching is A Vessel of Honour, Meet for the Master's Use, Good Old King James. And following on our teaching last month, we'll again be looking at the principles of growth, growing up in God, to enable our intentionality to match that of the Father. This whole year has been about being intentional towards God, as intentional towards Him as He is towards us. This is not an easy teaching because growing up means putting away childish things and taking responsibility for our own actions and behaviours. It means changing our minds and our mindsets which can be painful since we're often convinced that we are right. It means ceasing to blame others for our actions and reactions. So I would ask you to listen and take on board that which speaks to you. Don't start applying it to someone else, the moat and the beam syndrome. Apply what is yours and comply with what the Holy Spirit is asking of you. At first the teaching may seem negative. Be assured that having identified our negatives, we will move into looking at the positive alternatives that are given to us in Christ. Last month's teaching had the subtitle of Vessel of Honour and the completion of that scripture is Meat for the Master's Use and it comes from 2 Timothy 2.20-21 in the King James Version. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver but also of wood and of earth and some to honour and some to dishonour. If a man therefore purge himself from these he shall be a vessel unto honour, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. We are being equipped to do the good works that God prepared in advance. Ephesians 2.10, 2 
New American Standard Bible. I'll be quoting from that unless I tell you otherwise. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You'll remember from last month that the word workmanship is the Greek word poema, P-O-I-E-M-A, from which we get the word poem, which means a thing which is made by an artisan, a skilled craftsman. We are his poem, being written, shaped and formed, a line at a time, by the creator of the universe, according to his good pleasure and will. We are his workmanship, being formed with the greatest of care into his likeness. Any parent will tell you that their aim is to bring up their child or children so that they'll be well-rounded and able to take their place as responsible adults in society. We don't always succeed, but that is what we aim for. God is the perfect parent. There's no doubt about his ability to shape us for the works he's prepared in advance for us to do. But he needs our cooperation in order that we might come into everything he has planned. So this month we'll be looking a little more deeply at maturing in our faith and growing in God. In the natural, most children follow a prescribed pattern of development, some a little in advance or a little behind others, but it is not so in the spirit. It is perfectly possible to have 20 or 30 year old Christians who are still not only on the milk, but behaving like babies, having their tantrums when they don't get their own way and throwing their toys out of the pram. Father's desire is to raise fully mature sons. The Greek word you are familiar with by now is huios, H-U-I-O-S. He is devoted to changing our minds, the way we think about ourselves and about him. Romans 8.19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is longing for this longing for the day when every Christian will aspire to being a son, understand as a son, live as a son, love as a son. Until then we're all children, but we are not all sons. In this study we'll be looking at some of the things which hold us back from becoming fully mature. Those who will walk, not in measure, but in the fullness of Christ and come into their inheritance, fully mature sons. They'll come into their purpose and their destiny. So we're going to go over some principles this month, basic things which we need to understand and practice in order that we can walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. And I'll explain all that in a moment. First, let me repeat at the outset that God is not going to love you any the less whatever you choose when you've studied this teaching. However you end up living your life will not affect his love for you. He's not whimsical in his love, hot about you one day and cold the next. That is human love. It's conditional. He will never change the way he feels about you. He is immutable. He never changes. This is one of the reasons you cannot lose your salvation. His 
unchangeable nature. He loves you with all his heart, soul, mind and strength all day, every day, all the time and has done eternally because he's chosen to set his love upon you. His is the love of choice. It's not based on your performance, getting everything right, all your ducks in a row, living a good clean Christian life, whatever that may be. Everything he asks of you, he will give you. So when he says love me with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, it's because that's what he does. He has set his love upon us. He loves us with all his heart, soul, mind and strength and we love him because he first loved us. Everything he does with us is relational, father to much loved child. He sees each one of us through the lens of the finished work of Jesus on the cross which makes us accepted and acceptable in the beloved. When we do well we are approved, when we do badly we are accepted. We are totally secure in the love of the Father which never changes towards us. In everything beloved love is the key and it is the one thing that humankind struggles with most because the love of which we speak is not human love, it is divine. It is self-giving, not self-referential. For us, us, the whole Christian walk can be summed up in this statement, we loved because he first loved us. No merit of our own, everything is a gift. The struggle we have is with the separation from our natural love which is self-seeking and self-referential and self-serving to divine love, the love of choice. It's this journey into the Father's heart which will begin for you when you become as intentional towards Him as He is towards you. Since the beginning of the year we've been concentrating on how we can upgrade our walk with the Father, with the Son and with the Holy Spirit and how we can continue to be intentional towards them in everyday life, growing up in God, coming into all the fullness that Jesus died to give us. Our choices are deliberate, sometimes cold-blooded, in the face of everything we choose Him and his ways as our highest good. And in follow through we will continue to make those choices which keep us in the place of abiding and fruitfulness. In the face of everything which is against us we will say, forsaking all others, I trust him. We are aiming to live in the love of God and show forth that love in our lives, allowing the nature of God to be shown in and through us. It sounds simple and on the face of it we should make giant strides having made our decisions but there are two major roadblocks in the way of our progress. Our own old nature, the flesh life, this is really where we come hard up against ourselves and the demonic. This is where follow through begins, a lifetime of setting our faces into the wind of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, except you abide in me, you will not bear fruit. Fruit bearing isn't soul winning, 
He who wins souls is wise, Proverbs 11.30 tells us. But the fruit is that of the righteousness of the indwelling Holy Spirit, whose life is made manifest through us. One life to be lived, his through us. John 15.4 Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And the fruit we are to bear is found in Galatians 5.22-25 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Here we have a description of Christ's likeness. This is what the Holy Spirit desires to form in us, the nature of Christ. Our job is not to change people, but to show them what God is really, really like. So we make intentional choices to put aside those things which hinder us and work purposefully in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to allow the Christ life to be formed in us, one day at a time. We customarily refer to this as crucifying the flesh. What we're actually crucifying are the habits of a lifetime. Jesus dealt with the sin principle on the cross we died with him at baptism, so what we are left with are the habits and the desires of the sinful nature, the flesh life. Two Corinthians five seventeen in the New American Standard again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You have, beloved, a new DNA. When you went through the waters of baptism, you left behind your old life. You died and rose again in Christ to new life. This is what water baptism signifies, death to the old, burial and rebirth into the new. All things are new for you. Paul's constant plea to the churches was that they grow up in Christ into all things, not stay perpetual babies. And he says this to the church at Corinth in his first letter to them. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1 Amplified However, brethren, I could not talk to you as spiritual men, but as to non-spiritual men of the flesh, in whom the carnal nature predominates, as to mere infants in the new life, in Christ, unable to talk yet. Here is an established church that had everything going for them. They were way out in the operation of the gifts, but character-wise there was still something to be desired, and Paul lists the problems. He says they're acting like mere men, the unregenerate, he refers to them as nepios, infants, babes without speech, literally, still on the breast and certainly not ready to be weaned. 
The Corinthian church were making no progress at all. They were charged with being sarkikos, S-A-R-K-I-K-O-S, or sarkinos, in the flesh, the lusts of which have their source in man's corrupt and fallen nature. And Paul is saying, look people, you've had all this good teaching and it hasn't made any difference. I've talked to you year in, year out, yet you still need someone to tell you how to apply the basic principles which I have already taught to you. Application of the truth requires the other ingredient, faith. God wants his children to grow up. Some Christians are more mature in their faith at three years old than they are at thirty. Age means nothing. Some Christians will die babes, never having come into their inheritance in Christ. Comes the time in the natural with a child when you have to teach it to put its own toys away. Restraint comes as a great shock. There are Christians like that. The moment the restraint, the discipline of the Christian walk rears its head, they become disillusioned and fall away. As my father used to say, it's not all beer and skittles. The writer to the Hebrews said something similar. Hebrews 5.12 in the message. I have a lot more to say about this, but it's hard to get it across to you since you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. By this time you ought to be teachers yourselves, yet here I find you need someone to sit down with you and go over the basics on God again. Starting from square one. Baby's milk, when you should have been on solid food a long time ago. Milk is for beginners, inexperienced in God's ways. Solid foods for the mature, who have some practice in telling right from wrong. They've heard good stuff for years, but their hearing has not progressed to the point of doing, and he calls them babies. They need milk because they're not ready for solids, they haven't applied anything. Time comes for a son or daughter of God to grow up, just like in the natural. We have to get them off the breast and onto solid food. Jesus said something very similar to the disciples in John 16:12. I've got many things to tell you, but you can't bear them yet. God wants to work into the body of Christ in these days a capacity to bear strong truth because people are currently unskilled in the word of righteousness. They cannot take that righteousness which is theirs and apply it by faith in their lives. So they remain fleshly and carnal like the Corinthian believers. It's this lack of application of the truth that leaves us wide open to having no discernment functioning in our lives. Unskilled in the word of righteousness, we cannot tell truth from error and therefore we cannot discern the difference between good and evil. I'm horrified by the amount of Christians who get tied up in things. Uh, seemingly they think they're alright, but they're totally unrighteous totally not of God, of the other side, and they cannot see the difference. And many Christians can't discern what's of the new age and they happily become involved in touch for health and such like. 
aromatherapy, reflexology, yoga and hypnotherapy, acupuncture and so on. And there are some things in the spiritual realm which are even more damaging which are currently abroad. Some of us maybe are not even aware of the definition of sin. The Hebrew word is katah, C-H-A-T-A, literally to miss the mark. It's an archery term for missing the target or um, the need to keep short accounts with God. We may know that adultery, fornication, stealing and lying are sins, but what about our unloving attitudes, our harshness and unforgiveness of one another, attitude sins, missing the mark of God's best? The sin principle is dealt with, but we still do miss the mark, usually on a daily basis. Thank you Lord, I haven't lost my temper yet, but then I haven't got out of bed. A basis of life in the Spirit is that we recognise and know how to confess our sin. Keep short accounts. 1 John 1 9 Amplified Bible If we freely admit that we've sinned and confess our sins, he's faithful and just, true to his own nature and promise, and will forgive our sins, dismiss our lawlessness, and continuously cleanse us from all unrighteousness everything not in conformity to his will in purpose, thought and action. And again in the message it's even clearer. If we claim that we're free of sin we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. On the other hand if we admit our sins, make a clean breast of them, he won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us from all wrongdoing. If we claim that we've never sinned, we out and out contradict God, make a liar out of him. A claim like that only shows off our ignorance of God. The word confess means to agree with God, so when we confess to him our shortcomings, we're agreeing with him that we have some more work to do in this area. As we make a habit of this, we begin to grow up in God. It's a necessity, beloved, because sin that is not confessed is sin that is unforgiven, and we give legal rights to the enemy when we leave it unconfessed. Unforgiveness, for example, is a sin, missing the mark. Is there anyone you need to forgive and release right now? God's not obsessed with sin, he's dealt with it, but we do need to do constant reviews throughout the day. How did this morning go, Father? Could I have done anything differently, said anything differently? How did I behave this afternoon, this evening? Review these things before God. It's relational and it's a habit we need to get into. And there's a difference between guilt and condemnation. Believers of many years standing are still prone to what they call condemnation, judgment. What's sometimes happening here is that they are actually not discerning the conviction of the Holy Spirit and what they're experiencing is guilt, not condemnation, but they're calling it condemnation. Guilt, beloved, is the job of the Holy Spirit. He makes you feel bad when you are bad. 
guilt is a friend because it leads us to the feet of Jesus. Condemnation is an enemy and of the enemy. It makes us feel that God doesn't love us, so we can't approach him. He's fed up with us, he's disillusioned with us, and all this sort of rubbish, which the Apostle says again is baby stuff. We need to be able to distinguish between the two. So some basic things we need to differentiate between are the flesh, or carnality, and the spirit. We also need to discern the work of the enemy from the work of God in our lives. And what is and isn't sin, where we are under conviction, not condemnation. You can't crucify the devil and bind the work of the cross. Some believers are still trying to rebuke and cast out the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives whilst embracing the work of the enemy because they lack discernment. And there's no discernment because of lack of application of the truth or lack of knowledge of the truth. I want to spend some time outlining for you what carnality and the flesh look like because if you don't recognize them you won't be able to come clean about them when you find them in your own heart. At this point if you're sure you know go and have a coffee or something but otherwise just stay with me. God is spirit. The thoughts of the soul, the mind and the emotions are fallen. They operate in sense and reason. God cannot communicate with that part of us, which is why we're born again of the Spirit of God, born from above. We cannot continue to live in our soul and expect to grow in th spiritual things. It's imperative, therefore, that our mind is renewed, that we move house, as it were, from where we have habitually lived in our soul, in our natural man, to living in our spirit man, the soul put under the benevolent dictatorship of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with our soul, God loves it, it's what he redeemed. It just must not be in the driving seat. It needs to be in the place where it takes orders, not gives them. We're moving from our own understanding into developing the mind of Christ because our minds are being renewed by the Spirit. And what we behold, we become. What you focus on is what you will become. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 in the message. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure everything out on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume you know it all. Run to God. Run from evil. Your body will glow with health. Your very bones will vibrate with life. Honour God with everything you own. Give him the first and the best. Your barns will burst. Your wine vats will brim over. But don't, dear friend, resent God's discipline. Don't sulk under his loving correction. It's the child he loves that God corrects. A father's delight is behind all this. So we see that it is trusting God, not our own understanding, which keeps us on track. It also keeps us healthy. And if we give as he desires where he desires, we will prosper. 
and if we don't resist his correction, we will know his delight. It all sounds jolly good to me. The writer to the Hebrews put it like this, Hebrews uh, 12, 6-11, New American Standard. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Again, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, said it this way, Romans 12.2, Amplified. Do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adapted to its external, superficial customs, but be transformed, changed by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals and its new attitude, so that you may prove for yourselves what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. We see from this that we can only test and approve what the will of God is as we allow him to transform and renew our minds. We cannot do it with our old thinking. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And James contrasts the difference in two wisdoms, the earthly and the heavenly, in James 3, 13-17, in the Amplified. Who is there among you who is wise and intelligent? Then let him, by his noble living, show forth his good works with the unobtrusive humility which is the proper attitude of true wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, envy and contention, rivalry, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not pride yourselves on it and thus be in defiance of and false to the truth. This superficial wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, animal, even devilish, demoniacal. For wherever there is jealousy, envy and contention, rivalry and selfish ambition, there will also be confusion, unrest, disharmony, rebellion, and all sorts of evil and vile practices. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, undefiled. Then it is peace-loving, courteous, considerate, gentle. It's willing to yield to reason, full of compassion and good fruits. It's wholehearted and straightforward, impartial and unfeigned, free from doubts, wavering and insincerity. James tells us clearly here that the wisdom that comes from beneath is of the earth, our natural man born from beneath, 
earthly and spiritual. But the wisdom that comes from above is from the Spirit of God and is pure, peaceful, sweet, gentle and loving and spiritual. This resides in our new birth which was from above. Our spirit which was dead is alive again. Our spirit is the part of us which is in communication and communion with God. God rarely speaks to your mind or to your soul. He speaks to your spirit and your spirit conveys what he says to your understanding and to your mind. So the soulish person living in the earthly part of themselves cannot comprehend the things of the spirit. They are a mystery to him and he is at war with God. He is antagonistic towards what God requires. Romans 8 tells us our situation most clearly. Romans 8, 5-8 in the Amplified. For those who are according to the flesh and are controlled by its unholy desires set their minds on and pursue those things which gratify the flesh. <clears throat> but those who are according to the Spirit and are controlled by the desires of the Spirit set their minds on and seek those things which gratify the Holy Spirit. Now the mind of the flesh, which is sense and reason without the Holy Spirit, is death. Death that comprises all the miseries arising from sin, both here and hereafter. But the mind of the Holy Spirit is life and soul peace, both now and forever. That is because the mind of the flesh, with its carnal thoughts and purposes, is hostile to God, for it does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So then, those who are living the life of the flesh, catering to the appetites and impulses of their carnal nature, cannot please or satisfy God or be acceptable to Him. It all depends on who you're seeking to gratify, who you're seeking to please, yourself or God. 1 Corinthians 3 3 NASB For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Paul uses the word flesh, sarkinos, from the root word sarx, S-A-R-X, to denote the sensual earthly human nature, the earthly nature of man apart from the divine influence. He says they're making no progress because they're in the flesh. He's not saying they're anti-spiritual, he's saying they just were not putting what they have learnt into practice. They are still soulish believers, living their lives far below what God has for them. This root word sarx is, is used interchangeably both for the bodily appetites and the attitudes of the heart which are opposed to the mind and heart of Christ, being earthly and demonic as James points out. The flesh in scripture is also defined as the sinful appetites of the body. The body has normal appetites, it gets hungry, thirsty, tired, it's made for sexual activity inside marriage. It has appetites and they are not wrong. 
Simple appetites are those which are out of control. Sexuality moving into perversion, pornography and lust. Hunger moving into greed. The occasional glass of wine moving into alcoholism. They grow into addictive proportions. We don't have them, they have us and we have a problem which left unchecked will prevent us moving into our inheritance. The body must be kept under the benevolent dictatorship of the spirit as must the soul. Discipline in these areas is healthy. We must learn to say no to our silly selves and mean it if we're to grow up in the things of the spirit. Essentially carnality is about us wanting to live for God but being unwilling to pay the price. We refuse to relinquish control of our lives and though we may greatly desire to walk after the spirit, our soul is like a sumo wrestler which refuses to concede. And the more you give in to it, the more it will demand, the more difficult it will be to submit to the discipline of the Holy Spirit. Like a wayward child, it'll run out of control. The soul was created to serve and it will always serve something, sex, food, alcohol or even the enemy. Since it fell from its place of being a servant to the spirit, it will fill that space with just anything. A soul is not our enemy. If we have committed our lives to Jesus, it's redeemed. It loves God, but it is a pimply adolescent. It wants God on its own terms relegating him to something of the nature of an insurance policy. It thinks it knows what is best for itself and it fights to stay in control in order that it may have things the way it perceives it wants them. Our mind is often described in scripture as fleshly or carnal. It's natural without the spirit and its wisdom is from the earth, from below, not heavenly. Our soul, mind, emotions and will and our bodies are not meant to dominate us. They are incapable of guiding us and the result of serving them, Paul tells us, is serious. It's death. Romans 8.6 in the Amplified. Now the mind of the flesh which is sense and reason without the Holy Spirit is death. Death that comprises all the miseries arising from sin both here and hereafter. But the mind of the Holy Spirit is life and soul peace both now and forever. There's a power struggle going on between our competing appetites. Everything clamours to be satisfied. All claim to be of paramount importance and none are ever permanently satisfied. This is the inner territory we must regain. Our soul must submit to the benevolent dictatorship of the spirit. So just to cheer you up even more, we'll have a look at some characteristics of the flesh. <clears throat> I want to crystallise it so that you may be in no doubt about what the fleshly, carnal believer looks like. Some characteristics of their behaviour are jealousy, anger, rage, covetousness, uh, negativity and offence, touchiness and reactive behaviour, self-indulgence, pride and don't let's forget self-righteousness. The flesh likes to think it's good 
and have others think so too. It is self-righteous. So it speaks of itself often, telling you of its exploits and how impressed others were by its wisdom and wit. It always has its own plans. It's always telling God what it wants or doesn't want, will or won't put up with. The flesh puts limits on God about what it will and won't tolerate. It's stubborn and rebellious, intransigent and unwilling to change. It's locked into old patterns of thinking, habits and behaviour. And if this isn't enough, it's marked by independence, wants to be self-sufficient and refuses to pray about many things because it doesn't think it needs God's viewpoint. And in any case, it's got no intention of bowing the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The flesh is not a delegator or a team player. It has to do it all itself because when you delegate responsibility you have to give authority away too. And with the carnal man it's got to be my way or no way because no other way is right. The carnal man has a hard time thinking anybody else can do things as well as he can. He's impatient and hasty. He's always in a hurry. And the flesh operates in the ministry of correction, seeing where others are wrong, never itself. It also moves very well in the gift of suspicion, questioning the motives of others constantly. It plans. Planning is a thinking pattern that actually fosters anxiety. And as a result, it's controlling and full of anxiety and fear. It can become religious, self-righteous, self-satisfied, proud and pharisaical. I'm so glad I'm not like that. Prideful, judgmental and critical of others, always seeing itself as being superior, it quietly enjoys the discomfort of others, which makes it feel better. Needing to take the credit for everything, it likes to know everything. It's quick to sense rejection where there is none and it's reactive in relationships and has a low flashpoint. The flesh needs to look good, feel good and be right. It often has a hidden agenda. It doesn't like change and is slow to move its feet. This is the giant remain undisturbed. The flesh cannot be redeemed, it must be killed. This is where God and the devil are both on the same page. God wants to kill you in order to fill you. The devil wants to kill you in order to destroy you, wipe you off the face of the earth so you cannot come into your destiny. Paul tells us in Romans 8 where we're headed, verses 12 to 14. So then, brethren, we are debtors, but not to the flesh. We are not ob obligated to our carnal nature to live a life ruled by the standards set up by the dictates of the flesh. For if you live according to the dictates of the flesh, you will surely die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you are habitually putting to death, making extinct, deadening the evil deeds prompted by the body, you shall really and genuinely live forever. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That was the Amplified Version, of course. 
we're heading for sonship and we need to start changing our mindsets, habits and behaviours and replace them with good mindsets, some instead ofs and different behaviours habitually. Then we will be led by the Spirit of God and grow up into fully mature huios, sons. So the Christian walk is very like that of a journey from a baby to adult, in the natural, so in the spiritual. Anyone who's had a baby in the house will very soon recognise that they have His Majesty or Her Majesty, the baby. A baby lets you know what it wants very loudly and it will not be quieted until it gets whatever the desire or need of the moment is. Our soul is exactly like this. It will not quiet itself until it gets what it wants. I want food and I want it now. I want that and I want it now. It's impatient, never learns to wait. Delayed gratification is not in its vocabulary. It can't deny itself anything. It cannot say no to itself. It must be disciplined or it will rule us to our destruction. So by now you should have a pretty good idea of whether you're in the flesh or the spirit or dodging in and out between the two, which most of us are. I want to talk now about motivations in ministry. And the feel-good factor in ministry is a motivator for very many Christians. People do things motivated by the fact that it makes them feel good. There's a warm fuzzy in it somewhere. And this is the soul in action. Doing good makes it feel good. The other motivation is the world's way too. Oh, well, he's been good to me, so I'll be good to him. The you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours syndrome. Please don't misunderstand me here. We are meant to do good to all people. But neither of these are the works that God has prepared for us to do because both issue from the soulish nature. Galatians 6.10 tells us, So while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What I'm saying to you is, check your motives in ministry. Ministry is service. I wonder how we would change our vocabulary if we had to say to people, what's your service to the body? How do you want to work for people? Instead of this word ministry, which has got itself inflated to somewhere it was never intended to hold. Anyway, check your motives out. Just exactly why are you doing what you're doing? Motives are very important. Check them out. Why do you do what you do? Do you want to be first, best and right? Do you want people to think well of you? Do you have to earn their approval? Much of the pharisaical activity recorded in scripture was soulish and controlling. Concerned more with retaining power than demonstrating servanthood. More aware of status than humility. And more open to leading with power than with fathering mothering or mentoring. Fallen men and women strive to live by their own wisdom which is motivated by selfish ambition. If you desire to be in leadership you desire a good thing, Paul says to Timothy. 
but make sure that your motives for that desire are pure. Our Heavenly Father doesn't merely examine what we accomplish, but the attitude and motives behind what's accomplished. He doesn't condemn, but looks to where he can give a reward. 2 Corinthians 5.10 Amplified For we must all appear and be revealed as we are before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive his pay according to what he's done in the body, whether good or evil considering what his purpose and motive have been and what he's achieved, been busy with and given himself and his attention to accomplishing. Makes you think, doesn't it? What have you been busy with? What have you given yourself to and given your attention to accomplishing? Is there any eternal reward attached to it? The scripture refers to what's known as the Bema Seat of Christ, B-E-M-A, and this is the place where we will be given rewards for whether our works have been proved to be of wood, hay or stubble, or gold, silver and precious jewels. In other words, whether they have sprung from the flesh or the spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 and 13 But if anyone builds on the foundation, whether it be with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, the work of each one will become plainly and openly known, shown for what it is, for the day of Christ will disclose and declare it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test and critically appraise the character and work of each, each person has done. Even going on mission trips can have self-serving motivations because we get something from it. Sometimes missions are pursued as a solution to our own problems. Just remember those missions.